So I want to start out, as I oftentimes do, with a question. It's this one. Do you have a hard time talking about your faith with other people? Are you afraid that you don't know enough? Or are you afraid that um, somebody might ask you a question and you wouldn't know how to answer it, or you might say the wrong thing? Uh, if you are, you can relax. I think most people feel that way. You are not alone which is why we're actually doing this little three-week mini-series on sharing your faith without losing your friends, which we're uh, kind of using C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, as a model for having meaningful spiritual conversations with our families and with our our friends. When Lewis first delivered uh, these wartime radio talks that later on would become the book, Mere Christianity, Uh, He was super aware of the fact that many of the people who are going to be tuning in and listening to him were going to most likely be skeptics and unbelievers. And um, they weren't necessarily going to take him at his word just because he said something. So rather than appealing to religion, uh, rather than, which he assumed that not everyone shared with him, rather than quoting the Bible, which he assumed not everyone necessarily believed was God's word, what Lewis did was lean on logic and reason to make his case for Jesus Christ. And in approaching things that way, he left behind a legacy of beautifully crafted, brilliantly argued, and memorably illustrated explanations for why the Christian faith, belief in Jesus Christ, makes compelling sense. Much more sense, in fact, than any of the other competing worldviews that you could set alongside it. I think that's extraordinary. Now, last week, as we began this series, we looked at um, kind of how to approach having spiritual conversations with friends and family in, in sort of a general way. We looked at the importance of viewing these discussions about faith as conversations, approaching them, viewing them, treating them as conversations, not as arguments. Uh, we explored the importance of asking thoughtful questions. And I remember I used uh, Columbo and his kind of questions to to sort of illustrate that. You know, one of the things about asking questions is, number one, you don't have to be the answer person. But even more importantly, if you really want to have a conversation and not just a monologue, it's really important to get to know the other person and what do they think and how did they arrive uh, at thinking that way. What, what was their thought process be, be, behind it? Um, when we ask questions of the other person, we're showing interest. We're demonstrating respect. Um, questions are, are just, uh, just awesome, and they move the, they move the conversation forward, and, and they get deeper. Rather, you know, if somebody says, well, I don't believe in God, rather than viewing that as a question that's just going to um, end the conversation, to ask a question that carries it forward. Uh, Really, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Or how did you end up coming to the conclusion that you you don't believe in God? To see if it's actually based on reasons or um, if it's just an assumption. 
We talked also a little bit about the importance of knowing what we believe and why we believe it. And one of the things I encourage you all to do is if you haven't taken the Alpha course, it's a great way to learn uh, what we believe and how uh, and why we believe it. We'll be offering the Alpha course again um, in September. And we also then finally uh, looked at the importance of trusting God to do the heavy lifting. I think one of the reasons we feel intimidated about talking about our faith is we put ourselves under the, these unrealistic expectations, put a, a bunch of unnecessary pressure on ourselves, thinking that we're the one and our words of wisdom are somehow going to change another person's heart about Jesus Christ, when in fact that's God's job. What we do uh, is, is basically um, ask thoughtful questions and begin a conversation, but it's the Holy Spirit that transforms people's hearts. And that, that really takes a lot of pressure off of us. Uh, as somebody said, you know, they feel like they, they're a great success if they just put a little stone in somebody's shoe so that they're, as they're walking around, they're kind of thinking about God in, in new and different ways. Now, this week, what I want to do is uh, take a little bit of time to look at what Lewis can teach us about how we can talk about our faith. When other people ask us, Remember, we're asking other people questions about what they believe. When they ask us, well, what about you? What do you believe? How is it that, uh, that you came to, to believe in Jesus? Or why are you a Christian anyway? I don't get that. That we will have something meaningful to say. Um, and the way I'm going to do this, I, at, at the danger of uh, this sounding a little bit like a book report, I don't want it to be, um, we're going to look at the second section in Mere Christianity that's called What Christians Believe, so we can kind of see how Lewis teased out uh, his answer to the question, why, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Now, one of the questions that will often come up when uh, we're having conversations with people who aren't necessarily believers is um, People often ask questions about what they, Christians, about what they believe about other religions. And that question comes up in a a number of forms. Uh, People will say, well, don't all religions teach the same thing? Or they will ask, why do Christians, why do you Christians think that you're right and everybody else is wrong? You ever heard that before? I'm seeing some nods out there. Uh, we, and the question can come up in other ways, too. But it is a really interesting question. Christianity isn't the only religion in the world. So why should we believe it rather than, uh, say, Buddhism or Hinduism or, or whatever? Well, Lewis launched his second set of radio talks by hitting that question straight on. Um, and in doing so, I think he shows us that one of the keys in learning how to talk about our faith with other people is learning the art and power of unexpected surprises. What Lewis says is actually kind of surprising when you read it. Now, before I tell you what Lewis says about world religions, Jesus. Jesus constantly used surprise in his teaching. Surprise, saying unexpected things. It was a regular feature of Jesus' Uh, teaching other people, whether in the synagogue or uh, in the marketplace or or wherever. The Apostle Paul surprised people in his teaching as well. If you look at the parables of Jesus, even though we're super familiar with them, 
Uh, I think one of the the problems for us uh, as people who are really familiar with the teachings of Jesus is we forget how surprising they would have been in their original context. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he would have blown people's minds. Samaritans were the bad people, and Jesus makes them into heroes in his parable and lifts them up as models of of what we should, should be like. Jesus teaching was so surprising, in fact. Listen to how Matthew concludes his account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes or or teachers of the law. See, what the the scribes did was just repeat what had always been said. uh, And they tried to explain what had always been said. What Jesus brought was something fresh and original and surprising. And it made people perk up and say, I never thought of it that way before. That's what Lewis does. Listen to how he begins his talk on what Christians believe. And I'm going to read it slowly. And every time... I say something that uh, I think would have surprised at least some people in the audience. I'm just going to raise my hand here, okay? I've been asked to tell you what Christians believe. And I'm going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the other religions of the world is simply one huge mistake. But if you're a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist... I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them the most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. I counted at least eight surprises in there. That's amazing stuff. You don't expect a Christian to say some of this stuff. And if somebody challenges you and says... Uh, Why do you guys think that you're right and everybody else is wrong? You know, Lewis is saying, where'd you get the idea that we thought that? That's what atheists believe, not us. Lewis says at least eight things that his listeners uh, might not have expected him to say. Rather than being defensive about his views, which is one of the things that I think it's easy for us to, to kind of fall into, He uses the power of surprise to get people thinking. Now, one thing that you may be thinking is, but all religions don't teach the same thing. Absolutely right. And so Lewis acknowledges, as he needs to, and we all need to acknowledge this, that there are points at which Christianity is at odds with other religions. For instance... Some religions teach there are no, there's no God. Other religions teach there are thousands of gods. 
Some religions, actually, I think most of all of the other world religions teach salvation by works. Christianity teaches salvation by grace through faith. Very different. Uh, The other world religions view Jesus Christ in a way that is not shared by Christianity. We have a very, very high uh, belief of who Jesus is. He's God. And so, so Lewis says at those points where Christianity is at odds with other faiths, Christianity is right. But even then, he doesn't say that in a condescending way. And even then, he actually says it in a way that is kind of surprising. He says, as in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum. All the other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much, being, much closer to being right than others. Is that good? That gets you thinking. And it's, it's unexpected. The point is that we can learn from, we can borrow from Jesus, borrow from Lewis, and use the element of, of surprise when, when we talk about our faith. Of course, we have to realize how surprising it is. Now, another question that skeptics and, and unbelievers and, and seekers, and, and to be fair, many Christians ask from time to time, it's a more philosophical question, uh, but it's a really important one. The question is this, if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? That's a really important one, isn't it? Why is there evil in, in the world? Now, as, as an undergraduate, um, when, when he was uh, uh, going through Oxford, Lewis actually, had, I think he had like a triple major, one of which was philosophy. And because he was trained in philosophy, it shouldn't surprise us that he has something to show us about the wisdom of using logic and reason in sharing our faith with other people, logic and reason. Now, this is kind of surprising because there are some people, and you may know them. They may be in your your friends and family. Some people don't expect Christianity to make any sense. They think the reason that you're a Christian is because you have taken, uh, you, you take it on blind faith. Or they think that you might believe it because you want to believe it. Because you need a crutch, and they don't. They don't think that you've thought about it at all. And they don't think it makes any sense. They see it at odds with logic and thought and reason. But in fact, and this is one of the things that Jesus shows us, it's one of the things that I think Lewis does a brilliant job um, making clear, is that Christianity actually makes sense. It makes sense. This is is why a guy like Lee Strobel, who uh, trained as an attorney, could write a book called The Case for Christ. It makes sense. The fact, oh, this is great too, the fact that Lewis had been an atheist really works in his favor here because it means that he is able to see the question from both sides. He can look at the world as he did as an atheist and know 
you know, what his assumptions were and how he came to his conclusions and so on. But he can also look at the world as a believer as well. And so he poses a question. He says, look, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? For many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answer to that question because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't much easier and simpler to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power. Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? By the way, that is Lewis as a guy in his 20s, as an atheist who would have been asking those kinds of questions. But he writes, that threw me back into another difficulty. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. Now, how did he arrive at that? Well, his mom had died when he was, not yet, please go back to the slide. Uh, his mom had, or, had died when he was a little kid. He felt like a continent had disappeared from the face of the earth when she passed away. Not only that, here he is then in his, that's when he, he, he's, you know, 10, 11, something like that. Then as a young man, 18 or so, he gets sent into the front lines in World War II to do trench warfare. Ends up being injured, carried a, a bullet around with him, the whole shrapnel, the, the rest of his life. He saw his friends die. He saw the cruelty of all of that kind of stuff. And, and that led him in large measure to becoming an atheist. He didn't see any sense in the world. But listen to what he says. My argument against God, now we can go on, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? person doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. See, Lewis realized that even in calling um, the, the world wrong, that he was appealing to some higher transcendent measure. And that for him pointed to God. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust, he writes. He concluded... Atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we'd never have found out that it has no meaning. See, he uses logic. By the way, one of, the, one of his arguments against um, materialism, the idea that... Um, that the universe came into being, who knows how, it just came into being, and that um, everything can be explained by the random motion of molecules bumping up against each other long enough. And that's how, that's how planets formed. That's how galaxies formed. That's how life began. That's how human beings over time came into existence, and that's how we have thought. But, but Lewis has said, how is it possible? How is it even possible for it in a world that has absolutely no meaning, that's just completely random, for us to be able to think and have an intelligent conversation about it? 
Logic and reason. Now, logic and reason can only take you so far. And the Bible acknowledges that. Paul writes about this in Romans, where he says in, in Romans chapter 1, there are certain things that God can reveal to us through, uh, through nature, about who he is and about who we are and so on. Hebrews goes on to say, you know, in the past God spoke to us in different ways, but now in these latter days he's spoken to us through, through Jesus Christ. And here uh, Lewis is moving the, the argument up a, a little more, only this time instead of using logic and reason, Watch how he uses illustrations. Notice that he hasn't yet answered the question, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? If God is good and God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Using logic, he lays out a couple of different alternatives until uh, and dismisses them as not really making logical sense. But then he moves on to Christianity and what Christianity teaches. You know what Christianity teaches? And it makes sense. It actually fits the world as it is. Christianity teaches that there is a good God who made a good creation. But that good creation has been invaded by a dark power who, interestingly, had been created by God and who was good when God created him, but who misused the good gift of his God-given freedom. Now, why does God give, why does God give uh, freedom? Because you can't have love without freedom. You can't have goodness without freedom. This dark power who'd been created by God and was good when God created him misused the good gift of his God-given freedom and went wrong by rebelling against God and then convincing us to do the same thing. So why is there evil in the world? Well, rather than just explain it, Lewis uses illustrations. And he uses illustrations that every single one of his wartime listeners would have gotten immediately. Remember, when Lewis originally does this, it's 1942, London and uh, other you know, major parts, uh, major metropolitan areas in the UK uh, had been uh, bombed by the Nazis during uh, the Blitz. And Lewis uses that to explain why the world is the way it is. And check this out. He says, enemy occupied territory. That's what this world is. Think about it. And, and here, he's, he's really talking about spiritual well, warfare, but he never uses the term. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great 
act of sabotage. I love that. You know, a number of years ago, I had a chance to, um, to be in France, and I visited this one museum in Lyon that was dedicated to uh, these folks that, that had been uh, part of the, the French underground working against the, the Nazis. They passed secret messages to one another that would, you know, eventually make their way to, to the Allied leadership. They blew up bridges. They did surveillance against uh, the Nazis who were occupying their country. Lewis says that's what it's like for us as Christians. We live in enemy-occupied territory. Get this. When you go to church, he says, you are really listening into the secret wireless messages, secret radio messages from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going to church. And he does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. Now, the point in all this is the illustration. You know, he's using something that in that moment would have made such sense. See, reason and logic can speak to us in one way, speak to our heads. But illustrations and stories speak in another way. They speak to our hearts. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that my entire life, even before I knew I was going, going to be a pastor, uh, going all the way back to you know, sometime, maybe sophomore, junior year in high school, I have kept a little notebook. Originally, it was a notebook. But I kept uh, collected quotes and illustrations that I just love that I could use to kind of um, tell stories because they, they grip us in a way that, that just making arguments don't, uh, don't. And use them to talk about my faith. And one of the things I would really encourage you guys to do, it's one of the reasons why we, every single week here at Stonebridge, we give you a little bulletin insert where you can take notes. So if a story speaks to you and you don't want to forget it, write it down so you could use it. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I repeat some stuff over and over again, too, because I know some of you won't write it down. And I'm just hoping that if I repeat it often enough, you can go, I could use that, too. Jesus did not come to rub your sin in. He came to rub it out. That's good. You can use that. So if there's a, there is a good God who created us. But we live in enemy-occupied territory. And isn't it interesting that Lewis is able to talk about Satan here without actually using the term Satan? And why would he do that? Because he's not a Christian? No, because he's trying to talk to unbelievers. And he knows that if he starts talking about Satan and spiritual warfare, people are going to go, oh, this is just crazy talk. So he talks about the enemy and enemy-occupied territory and what we can do about it and also what God has done about it. There's a good God who created us, but we live in a world that's gone wrong. If we live in enemy-occupied territory, that's the next question he asks. What is God? What has God done about it? 
So he just let the enemy take over. And Lewis says, absolutely not. And here's where uh, we actually um, move on to another thing we can learn from him about sharing our faith, and that is the power of thoughtful explanations. Thoughtful explanations. Just like thoughtful questions. Thoughtful explanations. And watch what Lewis does here. God, he says, you know, God's actually done at least four things. First of all, God has given every single one of us everywhere around the world, all times, all places, every single culture, every single religion, God has given everybody a conscience. Now, why has God given us a conscience? So that we can know we live in a moral universe. And even though the world has gone wrong, one of the things that hasn't been completely obliterated from the good world that God created is a sense that we know right and wrong when we see it. We know. We, no culture rewards people for running away and deserting their friends in battle. No culture does that. God has given us a conscience so that we know that we live in a moral universe where there is a real objective right and wrong. God's done something else too. God has given us something that Lewis, when I say us, I'm talking again about the world, all times and all places. God has given us something that Lewis calls good dreams. Now, what are good dreams? These are stories that are scattered throughout cultures and religions around the world from ancient days up to the present that talk about a God who dies. This isn't just Christianity. We find it all all around the world. A, A God who dies, who comes back from death, and by his death brings new life. The screen um, behind me. If you could go back one more, you're a little ahead. Um, this is a, a picture uh, that is called, a painting that's called The Death of Balder. And one of the things that Lewis loved as a kid, he loved Norse mythology. And he, he remembered reading a part of, of a poem that said, uh, uh, Balder, Balder. The great is dead, something like that. And for some reason, it just spoke to him. He wasn't even a Christian at the time. He's a little kid. But it resonated with him, and he wanted to find out who this Balder character was. Um, Balder is a figure in Norse mythology who was one of the Norse gods who died and who came back to life and through his death brought new life. Um, my, my daughter's Ph.D. thesis was um, Images of Christ in Christian Scaldic Poetry, and it was about this stuff, how people uh, in Norway and in Iceland could understand who Jesus Christ was and became followers of Jesus Christ because they had been told these Norse myths when they were little kids and uh, remembered these stories about a God who dies and comes back and brings new life with them. But in the case of Christianity, it was different. And this, in in part, led to C.S. Lewis's own conversion to become a follower of Christ because what's different about it is those are just stories when Jesus came and died and rose again and brought new life to us all. That was fact. 
That happened in human history. And all of those stories, not just this one for, um, for the people in Norway, but other stories all around the world, just like the, the Hebrew Scriptures prepared uh, many of the Jewish people to welcome Jesus when he came because they had heard the prophecies. People in other places have welcomed Christ because they remember these stories. They, oh, that's what God was preparing us for, to hear about him. So God has given us all a conscience. God has given us stories. By the way, in our own culture, you know, what, how do, uh, what are the modern myths today that people believe in? We're going to be really looking at this next week, but where do we hear the modern myths today and, and so on? You know where we hear the modern myths today? In movies. Star Wars, the Avengers universe, you know, the Marvel universe. By the way, there's a whole Thor, you know, thing in uh, Ragnarok. That's all about Balder. It's amazing. Superman movies, DC Universe, and all that kind of stuff. Here's a guy whose name, uh, whose real name is Cal L, and he enters the world from another place, from the heavens, and um, he lives sort of incognito, but he has these powers that can transform the world. God gives us good dreams, too. Third, God has, has given humankind the gift of a special people, Lewis says. And who are these special people? These are the Jewish people, a, a holy people set apart. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart. Not that they were a perfect people. But they were holy people. And what was their purpose? Why had God called them? Why were they chosen? They were chosen in order to reveal to the rest of the world the kind of God that God really is. A holy God. A loving God. A merciful God. A God of justice. A God of truth. And then fourth and finally... And, and look at how Lewis does this. And it's, it's just all through careful explanation. He finally arrives at Christ. God has given us through that people, he says, a person who appears and who speaks and acts as if he were God with us. And he claims that he is God. And he forgives sin as only God can forgive sin. And all the while that he is claiming that he is God, he is living this life of humble integrity. You know, you can imagine if, if somebody showed up today and, and claimed that they were God, uh, I doubt that they would be living a life of humble integrity. They'd want everybody else to see things their way, do things their way. They would see themselves as the greatest and all this kind of stuff. Here's Jesus, though, appearing, forgiving sins, teaching this profound, surprising truth that couldn't possibly just come from a human source. But he, uh, the whole while, he is humble, and he lives his life with integrity. And wh what are we supposed to make of that? Well, here we arrive at... Uh, what, in my judgment, is uh, of, of hundreds of memorable things that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, this is, uh, is one of the, the best. It is one of the most often quoted. It is 
uh, one of the most powerful and important. And it's one that I think has given many people pause. And one of the things that's so great about what uh, this passage does, it combines all four of the things that we're looking at today, surprise and reason and illustration and explanation all in one place. And I think that's why it continues to speak to us. He says, um, I'm, I'm try- as, as he talks more and more about Jesus and his, the special role that he played, forgiving sin, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That seems like a weird illustration, but there was actually a guy in England at the time who made the national news because he actually thought he was a poached egg. I don't know. A man who merely, uh, was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be the great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. Or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. That's brilliant. Jesus is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is the Lord. And read his story. Look at the Gospels. And make your decision. You know, we have no better uh, teacher, I think, when it comes to showing us how to talk about our faith uh, than, than Lewis. He's, he's really good. Some of his stuff is dated. You know, we don't live in, uh, during the Second World War. And we don't use words like wireless but we know what enemy-occupied territory is. And we, we know a good argument when we hear one. But, you know, despite the fact that Lewis was able to use surprise and logic and reason and illustrations and thoughtful um, explanation, Lewis ultimately came to a point where he stopped making a purely logical case for Christianity. 
And the reason he did that is for, for a couple of reasons. One, he found it spiritually exhausting. The second reason was he didn't think it was effective. Not as effective as some other stuff. Um, last night as I was delivering this message, I, I found myself getting really kind of tired uh, while I was delivering it. I, you know, part of me was just worried, like, this sounds too much like a book report, and are people really as interested in this as me? But actually, I thought about it a little bit more, and I realized, no, what was exhausting me was I was spending all this time talking about God. And you know, when you talk about God, it's not the same thing as talking to God It's not the same thing as worshiping God. It is not the same thing as experiencing God and having fellowship with God. And I think that's what made Lewis tired. And that's why worship is so much more than just hearing a message. You know, it involves things like singing, addressing God with our words and our hearts. It it involves coming to his table. And one of the things that that Lewis did, uh, he he went to church uh, a couple of times a week. He had his own own church that he attended in uh, Headington, in Oxford, uh, uh, near his home at the Kilns. Uh, But he also attended morning worship at Modeling College um, often. One of the things is he he, um, loved to take communion, although he never understood it. He could never explain it. And you know what? That's a good thing. Just to experience God without the, uh, the expectation or the pressure of having to understand everything and explain everything. That's tiring. We're saved by grace through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is a gift from God. Like I said, he, he stopped um, making uh, the kinds of sustained uh, arguments that he made in you know, think books like The Problem of Pain and, uh, and this book, Mere Christianity, which I encourage you to pick up. Uh, he decided to, to take off in a, non, a, a different direction, uh, a way of sharing the truth of the Christian faith that was able to work its way around people's defenses by speaking to their hearts, not just to their minds. And in my judgment, it may be one of the best ways that we can talk about our faith today. We will be looking at that next week as we wrap up this series. In the meantime, I, I do want to, to um, recommend uh, one book to you. It's a book that I use for, uh, and my wife used for, for her daily devotions as well. This is a book called A Year with C.S. Lewis, Daily Readings from His Classic Works. And basically, uh, the editor has taken 365 of the best illustrations and explanations and so on that Lewis ever came up with, put it all in one book, and you can just you know spend five or ten minutes a day reading one of the the short passages and reflecting on it and man if if I were you i 'd mark the ones that make sense and keep track of them 
so that you'll be able, if somebody asks you to give the reason for your faith and the hope that you have, to be able to respond with gentleness and respect.